Welcome to the Base Path Podcast brought to you by New England Baseball Journal. I'm your host, Dan Guttenplan. Today's guest on the pod is a rising star as a hitting instructor in the world of baseball, co-founder of the hitting and fitness assessment platform Pelotero. Chris Calabello is one of the most recognizable names in New England baseball. Chris is a former Assumption star first baseman who worked his way through years of independent league baseball to crack the big leagues at the age of 29. He had a fantastic season in 2015, hitting 321 with 15 home runs. Chris, thanks so much for joining the pod. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you about hitting. Now, what I know, I don't know if you remember this. We actually met before at Fenway Park during your playing career. I went when you were with the Blue Jays and ended up meeting your dad who was also a professional baseball player in, in Italy. And I sat with him for the game. And then we, we ended up chatting for like two or three minutes before the game. But uh, yeah, that was, a, uh, that was probably your, it might've been 2015. I think it was your best season. Yeah, I can't believe you got out of there alive. You to talk to my dad that long. But <laughs> he's a left-handed, just normal left-handed pitcher father, right-handed hitting son. Yeah. Asked me when I was five years old. I actually posted a picture on my Instagram probably a couple of weeks ago, me throwing off a mound in Italy. And I think that was the day he asked me if I wanted to pitch or position player. And it, obviously at five years old, I had all the answers. So uh, I said, well, dad, I want to be a position player because the American League pitchers don't get the hit. So little did I know that 24 years later, 26 years later, we'd be sitting at Fenway and getting to talk to the likes of yourself. And he <laughs> came on intentional talk when I was there too. So I've made him more famous than I think he could have ever imagined being, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was a, that was a great experience for me to be able to sit down with him and talk. And so it wasn't long after that. I think it was like the next spring that I saw probably on the news, like everybody else, that you had gotten suspended for the use of DHCMT. There was a minuscule amount of an outdated PED. And I remember seeing that and being like, oh, what a bummer. But then it has since, in the years since then, I guess that particular substance, DHCMT, has, they found so many, I guess, n inaccurate tests that they don't even test for it at the major league level. Like, how did, how did that all come about from your perspective? Well, it's been seven years of learning analytical chemistry and uh, <laughs> yeah. making, helping people understand. I was second or third baseball guy to have it happen to him. It, it, it had happened to Frank Muir in the UFC right at the same time it happened to me. We had five guys test positive. And if we want to really get into the teeth of it, um, basically anytime you supposedly consume a substance, it breaks things down into metabolites. Our entire drug testing system is, is built off metabolites now, right? They, they used to measure for TV ratios and all kinds of other stuff, but the science has gotten so refined and narrow and, and uh, very precise, I guess, in terms of like how far they'll go in terms of the depths of like how small of a quantity of something you can find. And a bunch of guys were testing positive for a trace amount of this single metabolite. It's happened to 23 players and it's happened to countless UFC fighters spoken to the vice president of health and safety for the UFC as far back as five years ago. I've been as staunch and adamant as I was on day one. I didn't take anything even resembles anything that should sound like dehydrochloromethyltestosterone. And finally, the proof's kind of been in the pudding that there have been so many guys that have continued to say the same thing. Major League Baseball has officially removed it as a, as a positive test. That doesn't help me go back and play, which would have been certainly the only thing that I cared to do at the time. So it's been a lot of work. I had to be at the forefront of a lot of the discussions because 
And I don't blame people, honestly, in a lot of ways. There were a lot of people that said, I didn't do this, I didn't do this. And we found out they were lying later. So I think the automatic assumption was to assume people were lying. I knew my story was different and sounded different and it felt different. And so when people were listening to me, I think they were more inclined to believe me. But certainly now that the rules changed, it makes a lot more sense. It doesn't stop people from posting dumb stuff on my Instagram daily, weekly. But yeah, it sucked. It was terrible. I felt like I was really obviously coming into my own as a player at the time. I led our team in hitting and we had the MVP. It was the most fun I'd ever had playing baseball. It was what I thought Major League Baseball should be. And kind of just all got ripped away from me. On the positive side of things, I just still think I can go out and do it. So if anybody's listening, need the guy to hit 300 with 30 next year, I'm, I'm available. Man, who doesn't need that? No, that's, it's such a bummer because yeah, you were coming off your best year and it, it took you so much hard work to get to that level. I'm almost surprised that you're still involved with baseball because you would think you would almost resent the experience. Did you ever think like, all right, I'm, this isn't fair. I'm done with this sport. Yeah. It, I heard a really great line and it was in the, the Duke lacrosse kids. I was in there 30 for 30 or E60 or whatever it was. And I'll just bring this up because it, it kind of resonates with me. They asked one of the parents after the whole circumstance got kind of ironed out and they said, is the wound healed yet? And they said, yeah, the wound's healed, but the scar's still there. So I get reminders of it every day, right? Like there's no way to escape it in my life. There was a two-year stretch. And it really, if you look at my performance after that, like when I came back from the suspension and the, the whole first half of the next season, I was anemic. Like as a hitter, I was a shell of myself, still managed to do some things, but it was completely by accident. I used to tell people all the time, my greatest tool is my mind. I, I, I'm aware of my surroundings. I pay attention. I try to play chess in the batter's box. That's what made me good. So I knew it my whole life. I wasn't like the five tool guy. I wasn't the, the dude that would put on a show in BP. I was just a guy that could hit. My numbers are a testament to that. My seven years in independent ball where I did bat an eyelash and hit 300 every year. My year in double A, there was a month stretch where I was pretty much blacked out at the beginning. But if you look at the rest of the year, I hit 300. That's what I did. I, I'm a hitter. It's just who I am. And it was really, really hard because of my mind and how much my mind plays a role in my ability. I'm thinking of everything all the time. My brain doesn't turn off. People ask me all the time, like, how do you sleep at night? And I'm like, sometimes I don't. I try to sleep like four hours when I'm in full exhaustion. But that brings me to the point. I, it was incredibly difficult to try to attach the game. Now, whether I was attached to the game or not, wasn't going to prevent me from thinking about it. But I'll say this, after about a year and a half, you look at the second half of 2017 when I, I went over to the Brewers and was in Colorado Springs in AAA, I finally just kind of let go. I let go of all the stress and the and all the stuff that I couldn't control about it. And I was able to see baseball with a very clear lens after that. And it's like almost I realized it wasn't the game's fault. It was the system's fault. It was the, the organization's fault. It was whatever, I knew, however you want to define it. But it wasn't the game of baseball that did it to me. So and the game is still the greatest game on the face of the planet. Everybody's trying to change it, which I don't like that much, but people chose me. I, I didn't choose baseball. Like I. I could have played basketball and I love my men's hoops leagues right now that I dominate on Sunday morning because <laughs> I miss that during all my time playing. But the game, the game chooses us. It, it's, there's no escaping it. I, it's who I am. It's part of who I am. It'll be part of who I am forever. And 
if nothing else, one of the things I realized playing in the major leagues was sharing things with other people was my favorite part about it. Like getting to leave a suite of tickets to my friends at Yankee Stadium, getting people to come down on the field for BP, getting getting to have my friends, especially the ones I played college and indie ball with that I knew were in the trenches with me that loved the game as much as I did. Getting to share the big league experience with them was what my favorite part was. And I think in the same light, paying it forward to the next generation and creating opportunities for them or helping create opportunities because I certainly can't do it myself. They have to do it. So yeah, I guess that's a way longer answer than you're hoping for. No, that's good. Do you think when, when you were struggling, like when you came back from the suspension, what do you think it was because you said you were in your own head? Do you think it was like, hey, I have to show these people that I, I wasn't getting impacted or helped in a positive way by a performance enhancing drug. And then you were just like, who cares what anybody else thinks? And that's when it kind of turned around. Picture any thought that you could possibly have about what I was thinking. I had it. It's hard for me to, to even possibly have anybody resonate with it because this is the type of situation where people kept telling me just, oh man, it's going to be all right. Time heals all wounds and people will forget about it. Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, they're, they're like, oh, you're too close to it. I'm like, man, you're too far away, dude. Like, I, I learned at some point, the more I shared it, because I felt compelled to share, right? I felt compelled. I, I knew that the only way we we're going to do something about it was if I talked about it. And I talked about it adamantly with conviction, with the same authenticity that I've done every interview and conversation with anybody I've ever talked to in my life. I learned at a very young age that telling the truth is way easier than lying because it just makes things easy. It just... Like you don't have to stress about anything ever. And I've almost felt compulsion to like convince the people that didn't want to believe me that I was telling the truth. And it's just, it was very, very weird to understand that no matter what I did, nobody else in the world was going to feel the same stuff that I felt, right? Like I can have a conversation with you about it and you can be compassionate and empathetic and even believe me to a 99.99% degree of certainty. And the reality of the situation is that five minutes after we leave that conversation, you're not going to feel it anymore. And I will. And I have to go to sleep with it. And I have to wake up with it the next morning. So I think when I got to that point that I understood that no matter what I did, it wasn't going to matter as much to anybody else. Like I tell my, my college hitters that I talk to all the time, I'm like, nobody cares about your for like shoot when i played for the blue jays i said we had probably 20 million blue jays fans across the world i said five minutes after the game's over nobody remembers that i went over four nobody cared they don't care because they're going to move on with their own lives so i think when i got to that point and i realized that that was kind of okay was i guess when i let go a little bit you have to kind of hit rock bottom i think at times and jason Grilly used to say this to me all the time you become most dangerous when you're at the last rung of the ladder like when you're hanging on for something, when you're somewhere in the middle, to your point before, I felt compelled to like prove to the world that I didn't do it. Well, I hit 321 in the big leagues, so I need to hit 341 in, in AAA to prove that I didn't do it or that I didn't, I didn't need it. And like, let's call it spade a spade. Even if somebody did do it, like if there's anything that performance enhancing, performance enhancing drugs shouldn't affect, it's your batting average. It should affect your power, your production, whatever. So like, I don't know how a Eastern German, a ancient steroid would affect my ability to hit 300 when that's all I've done my whole life. So 
I, I am 300. That's like, I think that should have made a movie about me, but <laughs> I think Gerard Butler's already got that one covered. Looking to keep up with all the latest news and information on New England baseball? New England Baseball Journal and BaseballJournal.com are the premier resources for information and inspiration on the New England baseball scene. Have every issue of New England Baseball Journal, the magazine, delivered to your home or office. And don't forget to stay in the game every day with a digital subscription to BaseballJournal.com to receive baseball coverage on clubs, college commits, prep and high school, Division One, Two, and Three colleges, showcases, rankings, and much more. Get in the game and behind the scenes now by going to BaseballJournal.com. Just click on the subscribe button and start the subscription that is right for you today. New England Baseball Journal is a Siemens Media publication. Siemens Media. Inspiring. Informative. Insightful. How much money do you think it cost you? Because like the 80 games, I know how much it cost. How how much was it? So I, the day I found out I was in our second meeting with Toronto about an extension. So my agent had actually flown down to spring training and I, I loved Toronto so much. I loved my experience there. I loved my teammates. I loved the city. I loved the stadium. I loved the people in the front office so much that I said, Brian, I need to finish my career here. I said, Whatever they put on the table will take. And my my target numbers in my brain were like a three-year deal worth about eight million or a four-year deal worth eleven million. And anything beyond that will will say yes to. So I, I it would have been pretty easy to get the four and eleven. I think my production to that point spoke for itself. The year before I, I was playing at a probably seven to ten million dollar value according to war. And that's counting me playing left field and right field, which is not necessarily where I belong, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know, 10 to $20 million easily, very easily. And I think I'm going to be honest with you. Like I'd still be playing right now. I'm too good a hitter not to be, I'm better now than I was ever before. I can say that people can like kind of rub it off or shrug it off, but I take at bats now and I'm so at peace with the game. I'm playing chess. I'm way ahead of everybody else. My mind is as clear as it's ever been my body i'm in better shape now than when i played because my wife's got me doing like all this health stuff so other than the gray stuff in the beard i'm (laughs) I'm a better version of chris colabella than i've ever been yeah you look good so you're saying four years total 11 million for a 330 hitter like wouldn't that be 11 million a year sure but i would have taken four years and 11 million uh, because i would have had to go through arbitration so i I still would have had arb one the next year Uh and we we had projected it out to like I would have got three million the first year, probably anywhere between five and seven, depending on the year. The next year, and if you count that year, I would have played at league min again. We had the number at about it would have he would have projected out to about fourteen for those four years or fifteen with oh, okay. our beers in. So I said, if I get eleven million bucks, I was playing for the Worcester Tomatoes last week, dude. Like <laughs> I, I'm good. Like I'm good. You get me ten million bucks, I'm chilling. And I like to. The idea for me, and I, I've always been this way, the more comfortable I am in my environment, the better I'm going to play. I, I know if I'd ever gotten on a long-term deal in the big leagues, I would have smashed. I, when people prove to me that they believe in me, sky's the limit. That's what happened to me in, in 2013 in AAA. I won the, the International League MVP in like 90 games because my manager and my hitting coach were the best. Gene Glenn and Tim Doherty to this day. I thank you for what you guys did for me. Same thing with John Gibbons, Brooke Jacoby, DeMarlo Hale, Louis Rivera, Tim Leeper that whole staff, Pete Walker, 
those guys in Toronto made me feel at home and the best was yet to come. Yeah, I like so you, you kind of, that's one of the themes of your social media is that baseball is such a sport of failure and you can't, your attitude is the whole thing with baseball. If you get down on yourself or you get negative about a strikeout or an 0 for 4, like you said, that's going to, and, and you let that carry over, that can totally derail you and your season and uh, the, the positive thoughts and keeping yourself, like you said, comfortable is really something that pays off for everybody. It's, do you find yourself when you're now, obviously I said you were one of the top hitting instructors, rising stars in that industry. Do you find yourself mentoring kids more on the mental approach or is it more, this is how to break down a swing. This is how you want to be moving your body. I think it's both really. I mean, it's a holistic thing, right? You don't get one without the other. And I, I think Bobby Tixfer and I are like the yin and yang flow perfectly in together. Like people call me the mental guy and call him the, or me the hitting guy and he's the mechanics guy. And then I'll be in the cage talking about mechanics and he might be in the cage talking about the mental side or the approach side. And it, but it has to be a holistic approach. Like our, our industry, the, the world, social media is trying to make it about one. It's about, oh, well, it's about the swing, like to build a better swing. And all of a sudden you're a good hitter. And I'm like, and it's partially my fault, right? Like if you read the book, Swing Kings, if anybody followed me and Bobby's journey, it was, I screamed from the mountaintops how important mechanics were. Cause I, I was top four mechanics my whole life. And whose fault is that? Probably mine that I didn't pay attention better, that I didn't trust my body or my instincts or my feels. But I was a, I was a, a guy who was brought up learning how to, to pay attention, listen to your coaches and do what your coaches said. That was like what you had to do. And now I was screaming, Hey, mechanics, mechanics, mechanics. And then I realized like now we've done a 180 where we've got dudes on the internet telling people that, yeah, just build a better swing. And, and we've literally created all this swing doubt in players. We've created this narrative that, Oh, I, well, it's my swing. And guys send side view video to me all the time. And they go, what do you got? I don't know. Like, I don't know if you're hitting off a machine. I don't know if you're hitting flips. I don't know if you're hitting BP. I don't know what you were thinking. I don't know what your approach was. And the, the best analogy I have for it, this came from Kevin Pilar. I posted about this on my Twitter recently. I said, me and Bobby were hitting Kevin, it's 2016. And Kevin said, the swing is like a gun. He's like, if you're a dueler, right? If you're a, like walk 10 faces, turn around and shoot. The swing is just a gun. He goes, to be a great dueler, you have to be a great shooter. You have to know how to keep your heart rate low. You need to know how to dodge bullets. You need to know how to aim, to know how to control your emotions when you're shooting. And a great dueler can be good with a bad gun. Like just cause you have a 357 Magnum and you're bad at all the other stuff doesn't mean you're going to be a good dueler. Like you get away with more stuff if you have a better gun. And that's like the paradigm of, of athlete and at skill, right? It's in all sports, right? And guys that are really, really elite athletes. Well, if they don't, they don't have the ability to shoot. They just have a great gun. So they get away with more stuff for longer, but then the higher levels you go up and get exposed more. So most of my conversations, like the college season started now, most of my conversations are about trying to talk guys off a ledge generally, because I've been there. I, and I've been there so many times. Like when my batting average said 274 next to it, I was losing my mind because <laughs> I thought I was supposed to be hitting 300 every waking moment of every waking season. And Maybe that's why I hit 300 as often as I did, but it caused a lot of anxiety on my side too. So I remember the years when I performed the best were the years that I was able to detach the most. They were the years that I was 
I was more process driven. I was very focused on how to go take care of my work and make sure I, my preparation was good and that I was just focused on being on time, getting the right pitches to hit. And I kind of let the other stuff take care of itself. And it's, it's always this perfect blend and like a moving target hitting is existential with the discipline. And I've gotten really into Bruce Lee and I tell guys, you need to be like water when you're in that flow state of just, you become a problem solver and a critical thinker instead of like, oh, I'm really good at doing this thing. You have to understand the circumstances at any given moment in time. Yeah, I was reading, and I don't know if this is true or not, because I know you were a 300 hitter for your whole life, but I was reading that when you connected with Bobby, he made some suggestion or mechanical alteration to your swing, and then all of a sudden, that's where your career took off. You're 29, you make it to the big leagues. What was that alteration? So I, I would argue that any any of the, the swing change guys, the documented swing change guys, you look at Justin Turner, Aaron Judge, J.D. Martinez, Josh Donaldson, those guys were all great shooters already. Like they were all great hitters. They mm -hmm. just had bad swing. So like I was a great hitter that had a bad swing. Like, and what I mean by that is my work and what I was thinking I was doing were taking me very far away from the thing that was making me good. So I think, I think everybody's achieved an, a, an elite swing at any point in their life if they play at a high level. If they ever get to college baseball or to the pros, you've had elite level swing patterns or mechanics, whatever you want to call them. And and basically, it's about proper sequencing, like letting the hip be first, letting the barrel come around a corner, basically, and get on plane. All the stuff Ted Williams was talking about 50, 60 years ago, wide uppercut swing, matching plane with the baseball. And the weird part was that Ted Williams said this 60 years ago, and people thought he was crazy. Like Nobody took him seriously. Hitting coaches still kept saying, swing down, squish the bug. And, and the thing that I realized over time is that Whoever's coaching you connects with the thing that they connected with, right? That's the thing that resonates with them the most. So that's the thing they generally lean on when they teach. And I think the best instructors are the ones who they tend not to like cling to any one thing. They, they understand that I might need to tell one guy to swing down and I might need to tell another guy to swing straight up. So for me, it was like literally understanding depth of, of barrel, like depth of contact, hitting the ball back in the zone. People had told me my whole life to hit the ball the right field, but nobody ever talked about depth of contact and that, that it was okay to create some length at the back part of the zone. So my whole life, I was trying to hit everything out in front of home plate. So I got knob to the ball and I literally had no chance of, of flushing the ball to right center field. And I remember I had going into 2011, I had 66 career professional homers. Not one of them went to the right of center field. And then if you go look at the next hundred and whatever 50 that I hit, I think I have some like 200 change professional homers. I would venture to say that more than half of them went from center field to the right. Yeah. It's just learning. It's just understanding how the barrel moves in space. At the end of the day, it's geometry and physics, right? Like it's, how do we get a bat to move in a certain way to create force in a certain direction? But yeah, I would say proper sequencing and build after the, like the keys to all of it. Yeah, I'm wondering, like, as I'm listening to you, I wonder if you were almost like a better pro player. Like, obviously, you had a great career at some. She didn't get drafted out of college, but I'm wondering, like, you saying you're sitting on a 274 average and it's just driving you crazy. Like, college, you have to wait until the next weekend to kind of remedy that. Whereas pro, you're playing every day. You're also, you're in that routine. And like you said, you're much more in the process, process-driven. I wonder, did you feel like, 
pro baseball was a better fit for you than playing three times a week? thousand percent. I started playing baseball because we got to play the most. Like, you don't have to practice ever <laughs> in the big leagues. Like, you don't have, I mean, you have practice every day, but it's leading up to the game. I wasn't a very good high school player. I wasn't, I, I, I was okay. I mean, I was good. I just wasn't great. I didn't, I, I didn't make the varsity until I was a junior at Milford High. I didn't start my first game. I turned out to be okay, but it wasn't, I wasn't a big time division one recruit. I physically, I was still undersized because I graduated at 17. Yeah, it caught like hitting caused stress. I'd say my sophomore year in college, I kind of figured some things out, started playing a little better. Like finally, like started driving the ball. I was new. I figured out where the weight room was for the first time in my life. But yeah, like the idea of playing every day and like really being in the trenches. And I think the way I look at it now is like you have to love the game, right? Like I, I love baseball implicitly i love the chess match i love the cat mouse that's why i'm so annoyed at the pitch clock because i i won at bats by taking too much time like there were times I, and i know it like if you go watch the homer i hit in the lcs against volquez i won that at bat because i i played cat mouse with him i got him emotional to throw a two-strike bitch that wasn't the right bitch and because he overthrew it he threw a change up that was just far enough up in the zone that like he hung it enough for me to hit it out. So yeah, like I, I, I love baseball and by loving baseball, I think if you have, if you check physical boxes, meaning like, can you hit it hard enough? Right. Can you hit the ball at 90 miles an hour, 95 miles, whatever. Can you move enough weight? Can you deadlift 225 pounds? Can you like, can you run fast enough? You don't like, it's not about like excelling those physical skills because the bat speed thing doesn't matter. You can you can hit with not great bat speed. Like that's why guys get better when they get older as hitters because they're smarter. That's why David Ortiz had the best year of his career at 40 years old, whatever it was. That's why Tom Brady played quarterback in the NFL until he was 106 or whatever it was. And when you're when you're a guy that has to struggle early on, you, you just try to find you learn how to find competitive advantages in other stuff. And the most obvious place to go look for those is in your brain. And if you let your brain and your eyes tell you a lot about what's going on in the game, then the sky's the limit. You can you can take a subpar athlete, make him a great hitter. There's no doubt about it. And the quarterback position is similar, right? Like you don't like I don't have to run a four four to play quarterback in the NFL. I have to have a good arm. I have to see the field. I have to be able to move around the pocket. So I think that's why I appreciate those skills because like being the best wasn't about being the most athletic. Yeah, it was, it's interesting hearing. So you don't like the the pitch clock. I'm, I'm kind of with you on that because I feel like they're kind of trying to appeal to people who aren't going to watch the game anyway. But what about like the way, so you obviously went to Assumption, so it was a different recruiting process than probably some of the guys that you, I saw you at the Summer Rivalry Classic last year. Some of those guys are like big time D1 guys playing at Fenway in high school. I don't know if you had that experience, but how much different is the recruiting process and now transfer portal? And it's just crazy now announcing commitments on Twitter, all that stuff. Do you think is that for the betterment of the game or how, how do you kind of view that whole high school to college transition these days with the recruiting? I love the growth that college baseball's had. I love the visibility that it's gained. I have a lot of friends that coach in college. I can see myself coaching in college someday. I think it's like a time where we can be the most influential on young men in their careers and their path. The recruiting side of it, it's like kind of the necessary evils that come with it. Like, yeah, guys should be able to transfer and go somewhere and play, right? Like they should. Mm -hmm. 
but the problem with that is now it's become and like the NIL stuff. It's like, yeah, guys should be able to earn money, but now you it's the rabbit hole that opens up as a, as a consequence of the thing that you're doing. Like like having a guy like Tommy White transfer from NC State to, to LSU, they threw a bag of cash at him. I, I don't know the 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 numbers behind it. I don't know the logistics, but like, and now he's at LSU. So you went from a power five to another power five, which six of one half does the other from a standpoint of like, what's it going to do for your career and your opportunities after college? So those parts are like, they're kind of grimy. And then beyond that, now you're putting kids in a position where, you know, as a coach, when you're recruiting guys, you're sitting in front of their parents telling them that you're going to take care of their kids for the next foreseeable future, four or five, six years, whatever it is. And then at the end of the year, like, Hey man, there's not a place for you here anymore. So that part kind of sucks. You're getting thrown to the wolves a little bit sooner. But I think the dynamic of the before is is what's worse, right? It's the it's the kid that's a sophomore in high school that just because he hasn't had a commitment yet is out there searching for all the answers. And that's the problem. Is like we're trying to tell a 15-year-old kid who I was like 5'7 and 160 pounds or 150 pounds when I was a sophomore in high school. I, I grew going into my junior year, I got to 6'2", but I, I graduated high school at 169 pounds. So, like, how can you tell what this guy's going to be as a 20-year-old, right? Like, how can you tell what kind of commitment, effort, energy that, that he's going to put in? So, I think the the recruiting early bothers me. I think we should have to wait until after a kid's junior year to start making moves in terms of, like, recruiting classes because... I know plenty of stories of guys that committed when they were freshmen in high school and they're, they're three schools later now. So it's that part of it kind of sucks. Yeah, no, that is tough. Yeah. I think that would make sense if for the NCAA to say like, Hey, let's no offers, no, maybe even no communication until they're juniors. Like just let them focus on their own development and strength training and things like that, rather than showcasing every every weekend and trying to get these scholarship off. I do want to give you some time to talk about the Pelotero app. That's a resource for all ages of players that are looking to improve their hitting. What what does the app do and how are, how are you involved? So Bobby and I co-founded Pelotero in the beginning of 2020. There are three major inflection points for us. So I'll go through them quickly. Number one, in 2014, like all this tech started coming out, right? The hit tracks, diamond kinetics, blast motion, all these, all these devices that are, are really cool devices. They track a lot of cool stuff. The problem with them is like they all do one thing or they all cover one piece or they all like get some data and not all of it. So from like a true development standpoint, like unless we tie all the data in together, it comes very hard to make it useful, especially for your standard baseball academy or travel ball program or high school coach or college coach who doesn't really have the resources that a major league team does with a 30 person analytics team, right? So data interpretation matters, right? Like, and now you tie in like the business side and the baseball side. Like most guys that run baseball academies are former players that don't have like big business backgrounds or understand necessarily like the seasonality of the business, like things that are just like top line revenue, like recurring monthly, like things that Bobby learned wholeheartedly through the 10 years of experience he had. So the three major inflection points were one in 2014, he puts it tracks on. I had a diamond kinetic sensor on my, on my bat. I put a K-motion vest on. We had a floor mat pressure thing and a video delay system. So he put these five things on me and I'm standing there waiting to hit for like 30 minutes. And I'm like checking my watch. And then all of a sudden, 
finally he's like, you ready? And I, I, I was like, yeah, I need to stretch out. Like I've been waiting 30 minutes. Like, so I finally hit a ball and we turn around, we look at all these screens and there's just a bunch of numbers up there. And he goes, wow, this is cool, huh? And I was like, yeah, I don't care about any of that. I hit 300 <laughs> in the big league. Like, I, like what do those numbers matter to my batting average? Right. right. Just tell me how, to, I was like, tell me how to hit 300. So that was the first thing. We realized data was really disconnected and difficult to collect. Number two, he threw the home run derby to Donaldson. And the next day he had 800 emails of people that wanted to work with them. And we realized pretty quickly we couldn't scale ourselves. So that was two. And then the third one was, I was watching the facility one day and there were a bunch of kids that were just coming in. Like we had a very pro style membership model. You come in, you hit, you leave. And that bunch of kids would just put the tee down the middle and flip down the middle and take 250 swings and go home. You got a big leaguer sitting right here as a resource, but no question, no interaction, no engagement. The next day I was so mad. I just put like six drills up on the cage and their workflow completely changed. Like they were doing the right amount of swings. They were paying attention to the drill. They were asking me questions. And I was like, I was like, that's all I had to do. Put six girls up on a cage. So we decided we were going to build a platform that could create custom programs at scale. We collect data from any source. We have partnerships with a lot of tech companies. Um, we're working with travel ball facilities, like travel ball teams and, and indoor facilities. We're working with high school and college teams. We're working with individual athletes. And the whole objective is how do I, how do I get the message out to the most people to help them with their career? The industry, the, the social media stuff, it's cloudy, man. It's it's murky out there. Like the information age has become almost too much information. So I just want to become a trusted source for people that they can rely on and know that we can help them both in their development as players and for business owners too, to have tools that will help make their lives easier. That's awesome. Well, I'm psyched that you're staying in the game of baseball. I was excited to see you in the dugout at Fenway a couple of years ago when I saw you at the summer, summer rivalry classic. Yeah, I'm with you. You look great. You look like you could jump on a field and hit 30 home runs again. So I'm pulling for you. And thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me again. Thanks to Chris Calabello for joining us on the Base Path Podcast. Rate, review, subscribe to the Base Path Podcast on your preferred platform. Thanks to our producer, David Yaz. The Base Path Podcast is a Siemens Media production.